Hi, I'm Sheila. And I'm Hope. And we're two teachers. Coming to talk to you about the good, the bad, and the ugly parts of teaching. Hello and welcome to the Two Teachers Podcast. Today I have one of my favorite people co-hosting with me, my school daughter, Emily, and she has moved to another district. So we're going to be discussing today what to look for in your school district when you're considering leaving or looking for another job. So Emily, tell us, why did you consider going to another district? I considered going to another district because they offered a position in which I could use my master's degree, which I'm currently pursuing. There were no positions in my previous district that were offered for me to do the job that I've always wanted to do. And so that was the biggest draw for me to find a district that I was able to do what I'm paying to go to school to do. And what is your passion? Because I know you're getting your master's in it, but our listeners don't know what you're really passionate and excited about when it comes to teaching. I love teaching and learning about math, so being able to educate myself on how to better educate my students um, is a big passion of mine. And I think you reach out to both kids who are struggling, but also you are really aware of those kids who need a challenge, need enrichment with the services that you provide. And I know you were pretty much my go-to gal whenever I had a math question. I would always traipse down the hall and ask you, hey, what do I need to do for this math for my student? So I love that you're following your dream. Was it a hard decision to leave a district that you started in? Oh, absolutely. I mean, change is hard no matter where you are and where you're going. I loved my team. I loved my building. I loved my admin. I loved where I was, and I knew that I was good at what I was doing. I think it was a season of change, and so it was time for me to step into that and just, if I got it, I got it. If I didn't, then I was comfortable where I was and then can pursue at a later date. And I know you've stepped out of the classroom to become more of a resource teacher. How was teaching in the classroom changing for you? I know COVID had probably a big impact on how you were doing things, but from your first year, till you moved, how how did teaching in the classroom change for you? I felt like I got to know the job better, of course, through experience. Um, I felt like for teachers, they are expected to be a jack of all trades, especially at the elementary level. My passion was math, and I wanted to get really good at that to be able to help my students more, but I didn't feel that I could pursue that in the way that I wanted to because I was expected to teach five content areas a day, expected to have plans for and be able to teach those five content areas a day. So I just felt like if I could hone in my craft on teaching mathematics, that that was going to be what benefited me the most. And I had to step outside of my district to be able to do that. And I, I definitely think you were the expert in your grade level. I know your grade level worked really, really well together, and that was a difficult decision for you. So it it makes me wonder, the district you're in now, they do have a specific position for math. Mm -hmm. Why do you think some districts don't have that position for math? Because I see it as a huge advantage. I know in our district, we're really looking at math scores and how do we improve them. So, but we don't have that position. And that's why you had to go to another district. Why do you think some districts are lagging behind in choosing to put people on staff that are specifically there to help students with math? You know, I don't know. Um, I don't know if it's a matter of priorities for those that are 
in charge of making those kinds of decisions. I think that there's a need in every content area at every level. I think you have to pick and choose. And I know that right now reading has had a huge kind of limelight on it and math is slowly coming into the picture more. But I feel like that's a decision to hire on more people potentially or have a shift and have to hire on to cover those people that leave. So I think money is always a factor. And I also feel like there are few and far between that have their masters to be able to teach in that setting. And I think that's another thing that they're trying if they have to pay money to promote that they're not going to want to pay money to do that and hire this position and whatnot. So I don't know if it's a matter of priorities. I don't know if it's a matter of money. I I would like to think that there is the desire to want to help children the best way possible, but the way to get there isn't always the same route for every district. I know some teachers have had an incentive to go after extra math classes, and I'm not sure who is paying for that, but did you have any incentive like that, or do you know of programs like that? I do know that some districts will put cohorts of teachers through programs, and whether, I don't know that they pay fully, but will assist in the payment of putting them through the program. Myself, I am paying completely out of pocket for my program because this is what I want to do. It's what I want to use my talents within. And so I made that decision to go ahead and do that. I had the opportunity to earn my master's coinciding with my first year of teaching. But after thought, I decided to forgo that opportunity and get a couple years experience under my belt before pursuing a master's just to make sure I knew what I wanted it in. And had I done my master's my first year of teaching, it wouldn't have been what I'm doing now. Um, So I think that was kind of a saving grace in a sense that I kind of let myself learn what education is like, learn what it is to be a teacher. And that led me to the decision to pursue my master's and what I'm doing. Do you think that teachers coming out of college, because my thought is they're not learning how to teach reading, which is my passion. I feel like they're hitting the classrooms and they just haven't had the skills taught to them in college or the practice in classrooms to teach reading that encompasses just the whole ball of skills. Do you feel like teachers are getting that background information, those skills when they're in their prep courses to become a teacher? No, I don't think so. I think the most valuable learning experiences I ever had was through my student teaching experience and through literally trial and error, as well as observing veteran teachers, seeking out opportunities to learn more, whether it was from others or just from reading. I don't think that the prep courses did what they needed to do in the sense that when I got to my first year teaching, like I said, I relied mostly on those student teaching experiences and those around me that have done the job before. So what are some of your favorite resources if there is a teacher out there struggling to meet their teachers where they are in math and they're looking for more help? What are some of your favorite resources? My first, Well, my go-to resources when I was first starting out, no matter what it was, were my teammates. Um, I was very fortunate to have amazing support systems for my experience at my previous building. And then just veteran teachers, the people that have lived, breathed, and done this job, whether it's 10 plus years, I feel like they have some valuable insights that you can take in and then kind of mold into what you see as your educational philosophy, what you see as what you want your classroom um, to look like. And then for sure, opportunities within your district because every district does things differently. So it's getting to learn what your district expectations are, what your district um, kind of protocols are, and then going out from there. So if you have a building coach, use them. They're there. Like I know from experience, it's hard to ask for help sometimes, but that you don't get the help unless you ask for it. In my new position, I'm constantly saying, you know, if you need me, reach out to me. But I know sometimes that's a hard first step. But if I had any piece of advice for any teacher, no matter the experience, is to ask 
for that help or seek out that opportunity to kind of develop. Develop Well, I think develop those relationships with the people that you know have the information. Mm-hmm. And luckily, you and I had a really good relationship. So I could always come to you for either math or I have to be honest and say you are amazing at behavioral relationships as far as helping kids do the right thing and giving them the motivation they need to work toward that. So if you are shopping for a new district next year and looking back at both districts you've worked in, what are some things you would be looking for in a new district? The biggest thing is ensuring opportunities for growth. I know, like I said, my previous district, there were no positions that were my dream positions. So that's why I stepped out of that. But there are still within my new district, current opportunities for me to grow within my position. So making sure that it's something that you are passionate about and that you want to go to work and do every day. If you don't enjoy what you're doing, if you don't have a passion for what you're doing, then you're just going to kind of become stagnant and you're going to become bored. That's the biggest thing for me. I'm growing and I'm learning and adapting to this new district. Um, Within my new district, there's some pretty great resources for students, both behaviorally, academically, mental health wise. So I think that's been a great addition to what I'm seeing. And just I'm not to the point yet that maternity leave is on my mind and things like that. But I think that that's something to look into. I don't foresee myself, fingers crossed, needing to shop for a new district anytime soon. But like I said, the biggest drawing point for me was the position itself because I wasn't getting out of the classroom to get away from teaching children. Mm -hmm. That is what I was meant to do is to teach children, but I'm teaching them in a different way. Mm -hmm. And I'm getting to do what I am passionate about learning, both as an educator and as a student, but also teaching them to love it too, because not everyone loves math. And I- Boy, that's the truth. (laughs) Not everyone loves math. So if I can instill that in every one of my students that they are capable of doing math, like no matter the level, but they are capable of doing it, I would find my job as successful. Like I will find my year successful if I can have at least my students saying, I enjoy coming to class with you. I enjoy doing the math with you. Um, But I'm also being able to develop relationships outside of just students. I am now developing relationships with staff members and I'm developing relationships with people that work in our district central office area. So it's kind of just relationships are everything, whether it's students or it's staff, because I think the teachers have started to trust me more because they know that I am coming from experience in the classroom. I'm not coming fresh out of college to a position like this, but I have experience and I know what it's like to be kind of in the trenches, especially during COVID. Like I I taught, we've taught in COVID for what, two and a half years now, three years almost. So I feel like that kind of makes it more relatable and kind of a relationship builder on that side of things. Do you see yourself at some point teaching teachers about math in a, I don't know, community college or college setting? I do. I think that if I were to ever not be in an elementary school, middle school, or just K-12 building, I could see myself teaching teachers how to teach math. Now that's way down the line, but I do see if I were to do that, that would be what I would do. So thinking about my career over the last 29 years, I think some of the things I would like to see in elementary buildings are, number one, a copy person. We have Miss Pat at our building, and she is a true treasure. She is a volunteer. That woman keeps the copiers going, and she knows how to fix them, and when they need called service for. Do you have someone like that in your building? Uh, no, I miss Miss Pat so dearly. Oh my goodness. I want to walk in, and she'd just be there every day, but no, we do not have a Miss Pat in our building, unfortunately, so I 
have to make my own copies. What kind of duties do you have? Do you have before or after school duties? So for me, I do have morning and afternoon duty as far as that goes, as far as extra responsibilities. And then I am seeing students from the beginning of the day to the end of the day, K through five. So I am not able to do lunch duty at this point because our schedule does not allow for that. But I still have a morning and an afternoon responsibility on a building-wide scale. As a former classroom teacher, how did you feel about the lunchroom duty and the recess duty? Because I know many years ago, we actually had people hired to do that. And I felt like that made me more productive in the classroom when I was able to take that 15 or 20 minutes to either go to the bathroom, make parent calls, or work on something for the class. Yeah, I feel like they are beneficial, for sure, just from in the previous building, kind of the ways that it differentiated over the years of what they were trying to do to help better meet the needs of teachers. I do see the benefit of it, but I also kind of see as far as the recess thing goes, if I'm thinking from a behavioral standpoint, there were always issues at recess. And so it's really hard when, if you were to have another adult out at recess for them to either explain to you or the child to explain to you what's going on. So for me, I think I would have would prefer to have someone cover my lunch and then me handle my own recess simply because then I can handle whatever situations occur and then they're not brought back into the classroom because if they're brought back into the classroom, there goes instructional time for me to try to solve a problem that I didn't you know, know about or I didn't see happen out on the playground. But I do think that that 15 to 20 minutes is super beneficial as far as time goes to just have that even just 10 to breathe and not be in charge of 20 plus children. Right. And I, and I do see your point because I know fifth graders, I, I've been out there on the playground with fifth graders and to watch you work your magic and they can get worked up over the smallest things Mm -hmm. kickball is a real sport and it's life or death on the playground for fifth graders so i definitely get your point around that so how many how many years are you looking to invest into teaching what's your what's your hopeful goal i don't know i mean i'm as much as hard as it is to say we're kind of all teachers are kind of in a point of survival right right now trying to navigate a global pandemic and teach children to the best of our abilities because most educators that I know haven't gotten in, gotten into teaching for the income, but for the outcome of their kids. I think that this is what I meant to do. I can't foresee myself doing anything else as far as a career goes, but things can change in the blink of an eye. So right now I'm kind of just riding this wave that I'm on now and I don't foresee myself getting off anytime soon, but who knows what's to come. Do you hear teachers in your circles? And I know, you know, you're still active with teachers at our building mm-hmm. and you have other friends that teach outside of both districts and then in the district you're in currently what I'm hearing from teachers and I'm I'm protected a little bit because I teach gifted I'm on a different schedule the parents that we work with are usually really involved so my life's quite a bit different than the classroom or the regular ed classroom but I'm hearing teachers like you said they're really in survival mode they're having a really hard year and I'm not sure why because COVID isn't as prevalent we're not having the school shutdowns that we had, but it seems like this year is harder for so many teachers. What are you hearing from the people you surround yourself with? I think the biggest thing is we're trying to recover lost time. There are, te- there are students that have not been in a classroom for a year and a half, and so we're having second graders that are coming in at the level of kindergarten, beginning of first grade. So I think it's just trying to recover lost time. And even for those students that were in person, 
you know, we're just trying to get back the time we lost because of shutdowns, because of COVID in the beginning, because of quarantines, because of all of those things. And I just feel like that is adding to teachers to do lists that are already a mile long. And so they are just now feeling even more pressure to perform because there is still that pressure of, oh, we need your scores to be at X amount of percent or whatever it is. They're still feeling that pressure of a normal school year, even though we haven't had a normal school year in two years. There are the same expectations for teachers, but the climate and the environment has changed in which they're teaching. So I just feel like expectations for teachers haven't changed, even though our entire world has and the entire world of how students are in school. I have to 100% agree with you. And not only have the expectations for us not changed, but they I feel like they've gone up. Mm-hmm. We're doing more and more for kids and families and nothing is being taken off the plate. I know this year, one of our grade levels, they were all in person last year, but it's the lowest group of kids I've had. Having taught gifted for 14 years, I've never seen kids struggle with reading and writing like I had this group. And it was easy to say, oh, well, it's probably because they were virtual. But when we asked the kids and none of them were virtual, I think there are big gaps in the learning, not just with math, but with reading and writing that we really have to address. And I'm not sure that teachers feel like they're trained for that. Because I feel like within a classroom, yes, you have to differentiate instruction. Yes, you are expected to do those things. But the level of of differentiation could be as low as if you're, say, in a third grade classroom. It could be as low as kindergarten for some kids, and it could be as high as fifth grade. But when you have either only been trained in your grade level's materials, or you have only had the experience in your grade level, that makes it really difficult. And so now add to that to-do list of, okay, let me, like, there's always a want to collaborate to help kids be the best that they can be. That's just the nature of teachers, but that takes time. And so the time that is spent lesson planning, the time is that is spent grading, doing all the other things, and then now add on top of that, trying to meet the needs of your students, which every teacher I know wants to do, it's hard, you know? So yes, we differentiate. Yes, we do all those things, but now just multiply that by 10 because of the gaps that do exist that have only been made larger because of virtual or not even virtual, just an uncertain time for a lot of kids. Well, and I think that's a really good point. Because the whole time I was in the classroom, you would you would do your low group, your average group, and your high group. So there was really only three levels. But now I think teachers are dealing with five, six, and seven levels of kids. And sometimes that child who is a pre-primer in fifth grade, that's basically a non-reader with what you're working with. Yep. And there's not, I mean, that requires extensive training, you know, and that is not something that is provided to teachers on their time. Like professional developments don't always cover that. If you're going for a grade level thing, they're not going to talk about something that's four grade levels behind. And I get it. Like I get both sides of that conversation, but it's like for me personally, if I didn't feel that I was prepared for it, I often went out and sought after that information. But that again, took my time. That again, increased, you know, stress and anxiety of me to do right by these kids that I've not been provided the resources or the knowledge up front to be able to do that. So then, like you said, expectations are now higher on us because we're trying to close an even larger gap that's already large. How did you try to get parents to team with you and help make up those those gaps or those holes that you saw in your classroom? Mostly just that over communication. And I say that in a very positive way, but it's I often tried to over communicate with parents what we were working on in the classroom. My teammates were really great with their newsletters, you know, to put in resources that 
they could literally at the click of a button have or example problems of what we were doing in class, but just kind of over communicating those things so that if there were ever questions, our hope was parents felt comfortable to reach out to say, hey, can we have additional practice problems like this? Can we, what, what else can we do? But it's like, if there's a lack of communication, I don't want parents not to know what their students are doing in the classroom. And at the same time, I would rather them have more of that information than they need than not have it at all. I think your parents in your classroom also really understood how much you cared about their kid, even when you were tough on them. And I I felt like you had great high expectations for every child, no matter what level they were at. So even if they were a child who really, really struggled with reading, you still expected them to be part of taking notes. They could still copy off the board. You held a high expectation for every child. And I felt like all of your parents knew how much you cared about their kids. I've always said that if a parent knows how much you love their kid, they'll let you do just about anything to them and they'll support you. And I I think that's really important. I think parent support's more important now than it has ever been. Did you feel like those parents who really supported what you were doing, do you feel like that was the majority or do you feel like those parents were more of a minority and they kind of stood out more because you didn't get to see that with all families? I think it changes from year to year. So just as you don't have the same students every year, you don't have the same set of parents or guardians or the support system of a student. I felt like where I was at, and there was really high parental support, and I feel that there were pretty open lines of communication. So I felt like overall, that was kind of just expected or kind of uh, that climate in where I was at. So I felt very fortunate for that. Generally, any email or phone call, you know, made home was either returned or replied to, which I felt very happy about. But then you did have the students who didn't have the support at home. And so that made me want to try even harder, whether it was to support them in class or try and go meet them where they were at. I've done porch visits. I've done, you know, all the things or attended, you know, block parties and things like that put on by our school to try and build those relationships with families and students. Explain to the listeners a little bit about porch visits. So porch visits are when in the past, uh, my team of teachers and I, we have gone to the homes of either incoming students or due to the pandemic at the very end of the year when we didn't get all of the fun end of year festivities, we made little gift baggies and well wishes packages for every one of our students. And we visited every single one of our students' homes to hand deliver these package items for them and just to you know reassure them that no matter they're leaving school or coming coming back like we're going to be there for them and I think that kind of to parents was something new because I don't think it's done very often although I highly recommend it if you're able to and willing to do so I think it just kind of allows them a peek at you in an informal setting because when parents walk into a school that is the teacher's domain this is the teacher's place of business they are kind of seen as the person in charge in this way but to remove that kind of I don't want to say a power struggle but to kind of remove that essence makes it more related for parents and teachers just to say you know hey I care about your kid I took the time to come here I took the time you know to pack this goodie bag and I just really want you to know like I'm I'm on your kid's side no matter what that means so I think it kind of goes really far for a lot of a lot of kids and parents and what kind of time commitment was that for you as a teacher like how many kids did you have and how long did it take you to visit all those homes so the way that my teammates I'm referring mostly to the end of the year of this first year of COVID when we shut down and never we're never able to reopen that first couple months of COVID. It took quite a while. Gift bags were not a huge deal. We got those created, done in pretty short amount of time with all of us working together. But it took probably, we spent almost, I would say, an hour and a half of our, you know, three days that we were at school um, under contract. We spent probably about an hour and a half of time each day going and we got smart.
smart and we went by bus route so we looked for addresses that were on bus routes so that they could be you know we chose a bus a day to go and do these visits to but i will say that we had kids that moved out of district that we still went and saw so we went we saved the last day for students that were either had moved during that time or were somewhere else for whatever reason and we went and visited them and i think that impacted parents the most for those kids to see that we drove we drove upwards of almost 20 minutes one way to get to one of our students that time so i just think it just shows you know that we are more than just who we are in the classroom did you feel like that really cemented your relationship with that family as well yeah and i think it brought at that moment a great sense of closure knowing that we weren't going to see these kids again unfortunately because schools were shut down but i do think like i said it goes really far to see someone face to face versus behind a computer screen or on the phone i've always been one for face-to-face communication more than anything second best would be a phone call but i do think that just kind of went a long way for most of our families in your new position do you have kids that you you meet virtually with no so we do not provide where i'm at now and as of now we do not provide services to students virtually because we are barely able to meet kids in person that need our services so all kids are in person Mm -hmm. at this point yes do you think that our nation will always have a possibility of that virtual online teaching in some form or way going into the future? I don't think there's a way that we can't just because it was at such a high need the beginning of the global pandemic, but it also kind of meets the needs of some parents and families that are in extenuating circumstances, you know, because that's one way to alleviate it. There is a transportation issue. Yes, I know we have school buses, but that's not always a possibility for families. So I feel like in that case, like for that reason, that virtual would be a great option or kids that can't be in person because of health concerns or because family members have health concerns. I don't feel as if virtual education as far as K-12 goes is going to be going anywhere anytime soon if I had to guess. I agree with you. We have a little boy who comes to our program and he gets his gifted services in person with us, but he takes coding. We've started a coding unit and he he zipped through everything we were showing and it turns out he's taking coding classes every Friday and he's virtual with our district. So I said, where, who's teaching you coding? Because I thought, oh, it's somebody in our district. No, it's someone in China who's giving him coding lessons every week. And I thought that was amazing. His mom is also teaching him math. And when he shows me the type of math he's doing, he has so many rules that he has to learn. Like if the number is this, then you have to do this. But if the number is lower than this, you have to do that. And I just, I just wonder, could kids from the States learn all these minute little rules to be able to function in the type of higher level math that he's doing. And I'm, I'm going to say, no, it, I think it would be kind of hard for our kids. Yeah, there's just such a big deficit in conceptual understanding of numbers as a whole, not even operations, not even anything like that, but just conceptual understanding of numbers. What is this, this digit? What does this number represent? What does it mean? So if we don't have that conceptual understanding, we can't perform those rules with accuracy. You can follow a set of rules, but you're going to have no idea why they work. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a big deficit that everyone across anywhere is facing. You know, how are we building that conceptual understanding for kids to understand why XYZ works? And if they don't, they're just literally performing mindless tasks that are just going to go by the wayside when they really need it for whatever reason. Well, and I don't think we've taught kids how to play with numbers. Mm -hmm. I try to do kind of a think aloud anytime I deal with numbers. And uh, my kids are working on math games and they're creating their own math games to take home for Christmas and play with their families. And it's hilarious because gifted kids can be on 
Connery. And one of them keeps saying, oh, my family's going to hate this game. And they're laughing and they're gleeful that, oh, this is so hard for their families. And all of them, except for my second graders, have to come up with algebraic expressions or equations. And I've taught them how to kind of work that backwards from the answer and what x value is and then create algebraic expressions or equations and they are loving it. But I love seeing them play with the numbers like 48 plus 48 and talking to a student, what if we rounded that up to 50 and then subtracted the extra? And I think we need to do more of that, but mm-hmm. just feeling comfortable with numbers and playing with them. Oh, absolutely. Being flexible in your understanding and your knowledge and your manipulation of numbers is everything. So what I use when I'm working with students is kind of almost, I don't want to say game-based, but activity-based exploration when it comes to learning about numbers and being able to be flexible in our thinking. Because I always tell my kids, I said, you know, I say, I don't care how long it takes you to get there, but if you can explain to me and understand why what you did to get you there works, that's fine. Like I know time is everything and we never have enough of it, but if I can have a student that is flexible enough in their thinking to get to a correct answer using something that makes sense to them, let's start there. And then we can become more efficient with the strategies that we use. While standard algorithms and common procedures work really well and are less time consuming, kids are often going to get things wrong because they don't know why they're doing what they're doing. If they can understand why and if repeated addition is their jam, let's do that until we can get to equal groups for multiplication. Let's go there. Let's do it because if you're going to build their confidence in that area, they're going to be more confident to take risks to become more efficient in the procedures and um, algorithms that they use. So if you had to tell first year teacher Emily something about her future to wrap up this podcast, what would you say to first year Emily? Give yourself grace. I feel that I am very hard on myself, professionally, personally, just all around. And I did the best with the circumstances I was dealt. And for me to do something with my students to know that I cared for them and I was happy they were there means more than me teaching them what 200 times 200 is or you know any piece of content knowledge, but just to be okay in the fact that maybe we didn't get to everything today or maybe I this lesson was a complete disaster, but my kids know that I care for them and they are meant to be there with me and that's okay. I love that. So friends, if you have a fear of math or it's not your favorite subject, find your Emily on staff, go to them, ask them for help. Don't be afraid to ask for help because I think no matter what you teach, there are other people who know things that can be your resource as well. So thank you for joining us today, Emily, and hope that everyone joins us again next time on the Two Teachers Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe or give us a five-star review. It makes us show up so much more in those searches.